everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, Discovery. It's good to see you. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, we got, there's some cool stuff we're going to be walking through the day. I'm, I'm really excited for it. The first thing, be, actually before we get into our message, you may have walked in this morning and been like, there's stuff on the walls. Um, and I, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've ever been inside a Catholic church or maybe an Orthodox church or an Episcopal church. But when you walk into to some of those higher church buildings, the walls themselves just speak gospel. Um, you can like totally tune out on the preacher, which for some of you are like, I wish we had more of that here. Because uh, you can just observe the story of the Bible on the walls around. And it's something that we've been dreaming about here actually long before even my time. Um, but uh, I wanted to thank some friends who are helping us move this direction. My friend Beth took on this project, um, and she, uh, she was helped by Sarah. Thank you, Sarah, and Michael, and Lene, and Joy. Um, but this will be an evolving project uh, for the rest of our time in Matthew. So uh, before you leave today, I would just love to invite you. If you want to come up, you can see um, from the back of the room, there's colors, there's like a grid pattern, there's a bit of a mystery to what's going on here. But the closer you get to, you'll notice there's words on some of these tiles. And if you were here, I think it was at the beginning of June, we had a sermon, and one of the things we did is we texted in what words come to mind of what life is like without Jesus. And there was a big word bubble that went up on the screen, and so we captured all of those words, and those words are now on these tiles um, that are on the wall. So you can come up and just see like, what, what did people say, just as a reminder. Also, if you weren't here or if you weren't, you're like, I got more. Um, there's tiles that are blank that are on the table down here. You are invited and actually wanted uh, to come and just write, what, what is that for you? What, what is life like without Jesus? And you don't have to be a Christian to write something. You don't have to like doctor it up to be like a super spiritual thing. Just what is that? And then just know over the next several weeks, um, both sides of the stage are going to continue to morph. And I hope and really believe, oh, it's so delightful. Um, but this will be a fun uh, experience of just letting the walls speak to us too. Um, as we jump into today, um, I was really thinking through like, how do we get into this one? And I was reminded of a story from college, and my college stories are some of my favorite um, and deeply kept. I went to a small Christian college in Los Angeles. I went knowing not a soul, made friends right away, um, and they're friends that we still get on Zoom calls quarterly and update each other on our lives and our kids, and we pray for each other. A lot of us are doing, uh, all of us actually doing ministry work all over the globe. It's super fun. But my senior year, uh, there was this apartment complex on campus and in order to get in there you had to like there was a lottery process and once once they kind of ran out of rooms you, you didn't get to go there and you had to be back in in the lame dorms on campus and so there were nine of my best friends and we thought you know what let's all enter the lottery we'll see if we can all end up in this apartment building if we can that's awesome and if we can't like we'll all just pull our names out and we'll all go like rent a house or something like that together the day of the lottery comes and we get slots one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It was like an act of God. It was amazing. And so we got the whole bottom floor of this apartment complex, which if they would have known on the front end that that was what was going to happen, they would not have allowed this. But my friend, there are so many stories um, that come out of my senior year. Just, just delight. You get a bunch of 21-year-old yahoos running around. Oh, we just had so much fun. But my friend Tim, uh, Tim, Tim is probably six foot seven. Um, grew up uh, in Nigeria, but t he, Tim, is, Tim is an American. Um, he's probably 
probably like 90 pounds sopping wet at 21 years old, like just a beanpole of a man, um, and white, just so white. And, and he would be running across campus all the time because Tim was always late. I think one of the things of growing up in a non-Western co- country is time's a little bit more relative, and that's for sure how Tim grew up. So he was always late to stuff. So you'd always see Tim running across campus. Now, there's two things that you need to know. Tim only wore, like, sandals, but like the slides, you know, that just have the one big strap that goes over the top of you. So he would always be running across campus in these slides. And because he was so tall and so skinny, the way that he ran, it was like, it was like watching an albino giraffe sprint. Like, just kind of this, like, look at that, you know? Like, it was just enjoyable to watch. And, and he would do this all the time. Well, one day, my roommate Max and Tyler, our other roommate, got this idea of, like, we, we really, we're going to mess with Tim just a little bit. And it was getting close to the end of our first semester, and they knew that Tim had this Bible paper that was due. So they got into his room, and we all, you know, all shared key. We never locked anything. And they get into his computer, and I don't know if you know this. Um, this may be dangerous material to be giving to a, a room this size, but they got into this function. It's the autocorrect function. So you can actually manipulate that to do whatever you want. And so uh, right now, if you spell the T-E-H, it'll just autocorrect it to T-H-E. Like, it's, it's a helpful thing. Well, Max and Tyler get into this thing, and they go, okay, we're going we're gonna, to, like, change some things. So anytime the word the pops up or the word ah or um, the word him, we're going to change those to profanity, um, which, which is, is amazing. And so, and they just, they do it all, they hit go, and all of a sudden, bloop, here's his whole paper, his final for this Bible class that is now riddled with really really poor language. <laughs> and so um, Tim, you know, and they're, they're thinking like, Tim's going to look at this, like he'll catch it, but like he, he just can't wait till the last minute. As Tim always does, sprinting across campus. A few days later, he comes walking back into his room and his head, like he just, he looks like he got hit by a grenade. Like what happened? And he's got this paper in his hands. And he like collapses down onto the couch, like shell-shocked. Tim, what happened? He goes, I, I just... I just had a meeting with my Bible professor. And he, he, he said, I walk in, and he just, he didn't say much. He just slid the paper across my desk. And I flipped through the first page, and you could tell, like, there's just red all over the pages. And you get to about, it's like a 10-page paper. I got to the end of page three, and you could just tell he stopped reading it at that point. And Tim goes, Zach, there's language in this paper that I don't remember putting there. Zach. I think I'm demon-possessed. You pray for me. And I'm like, oh. And I, I wasn't totally aware of everything that had been going on. I knew that Tyler and Matt, and from the next room over, I hear Tyler had this cackle. It sounded like a dolphin laughing, just as, ah! He's like going crazy in the next room. And they come pouring in. But with one look, they, just one look at Tim's face, like, oh, he didn't catch it in time. They thought that he was coming in to say, I found this in my computer so now we've got a little bit of a conundrum. Uh, Tim's received not even an F. He just didn't, he gets just a zero. Like, you don't get a grade on this, and it's too late. So now Max and Tyler have to decide, what are we going to do? So they go in, sit down, and they're all in this class together. So they have this teacher, too, and they have to confess, like, here's what we did. <laughs> and we thought it was funny. We see now that it's not funny. We see now it's really not funny. Like, and, and in the end, it all turns out okay. I don't, I don't ever think that Tim improved that score, however, of a zero. 
And one of those like poignant moments that I think for a Bible professor, he was the coolest guy, Professor Lundy. Um, but I think for him, it was a lesson not for Tim, although he took the punishment. It was a lesson for, for Tyler and Max. Um, and it was really funny. Like, it was so funny, you guys. It's, it's hard to communicate how, it's, especially being a third-party observer. But sometimes we get lulled into thinking that when we mess up in the world, um, that it just goes away. Like, as if there's no consequence. Like, I, I, I identify with this, that there's, you're just screwing up so much. Like, you're, you're, you're damaging relationships, you're saying things, you're like, why did I say that? And there's, like, some of a survival skill of we just have to roll with it. Like, I, we got to move on to the next thing. We can't stop at every single moment. But it does begin to build up, and I watch this with my kids, too, this, this like, desensitization of, ah, uh, it's just another thing that's wrong, that that's just how it is, and we keep on moving. But there is always a cost when something is wrong. Someone always has to deal with the fallout every time. And I, I think to help set the stage for what we're talking about today, in a world where we have school shootings, where we have systemic racism, where there's senseless hate that just litters the newspapers, how do we make sense of all this? Where does the cost go? Who should have to pay it? And I think if you find yourself looking at everything wrong in the world and you condemn that, are you so much better in your own life? And in the same breath, if you look at the world and you condone it, doesn't that just make you more of some kind of monster that's in the world around anyway? I mean, how do we deal with evil in the world? What's our posture? And the brilliance of Jesus that I think we'll find today is that when he was asked if we should condemn it or if we should condone it, he actually offers a kind of third option. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. We're talking about forgiveness all morning today. And um, I think before we get into it, there's some things I wanna set the stage with. The first, just getting into the word itself is fascinating. If you, the etymology of the word forgive, here it is on the screen for you, but for is, is really getting at the idea of completely. So to completely, and then gaifan or gab um, is, is this idea of both to give or receive. So to completely give or receive something, which should kind of like raise your eyebrow and be like, oh, this is like a riddle. Why? Like, what's going on in this word forgive? Why, how has it evolved that now we say forgive it and, and we have our kind of own internal definition, but at, at the beginning, to completely give or receive. It's poetry. This is a very poetic word. And what are we giving when we offer forgiveness? Well, I think we're, we're giving grace to somebody else. And what are we receiving when we give forgiveness? I think this is a deeply spiritual question that revolves completely around your spirituality. If you're somebody who is, say, an atheist, I, I think that the best answer is, what do you receive when you forgive somebody? Like, nothing. Like you, you're, you're stuck holding the cost. If you're a follower of Jesus, I think there's a different answer. Because when you give forgiveness, what you're giving away is grace. But what we're gonna find Jesus saying today is that when you're a follower of Jesus, you also are receiving grace, which is wild. And I love that it shows up just in the outline of what the word is. 
Um, also, I think if we're going to understand how the Bible is getting around this idea, you want to see, like, when does the word that shows up for forgiveness, when else does that show up in Scripture, and what's the idea that they're getting at? So I'm going to put up on the screen, when, when the Bible's trying to define forgiveness, here's some of the other places, the other themes, metaphors that it's getting at. Forgiveness. Um, some of my favorites that are up here, you can just peruse this, but hopefully this helps build out a fuller vision of what forgiveness is. I love the ones of teachers, writers, or speakers to omit. It's like editing something. Like that used to be there, but we're going to get rid of that now. I I love the one that's a little bit further down, to let go of, to give up a debt, to forgive or to remit. That's going to show up in our story for today. In order to go to another place. You see that one? To forgive is as if I'm I'm here, but I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm not going to be here anymore which then it gets even more personal and, and kind of down towards the end. To forgive, to leave one by not taking them as a companion. Wrap your head around that. That's really beautiful. Like, if I need to forgive somebody, when I do that, the wrong that was done, I will leave here and I will not take it with me any further as a companion. That's awesome. And then finally, and maybe even take that one one step deeper, to leave on dying to leave one behind, either to say you are dead, or I think really what it's getting at is I am dead to you, and I'm leaving you at that kind of a level. That's awesome. That's really cool. That's how the Bible is using it. And I think one more thing before we jump into our scripture for today. I want to acknowledge that in a room of this size, When we use the word forgiveness, for some of us, it's going to draw up images of the dirty dishes that somebody else didn't do last night, and that's okay. And for some of us, it's going to draw up images of abuse and deep trauma. For some of us, things that are happening right now in our lives. And I want to address that tension in the room, and I think by way of doing that, I want to also address some things that forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not condoning. It's not as if you're saying it's okay so that that person can just keep on doing it. That's not, as from a biblical frame, that is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not forgetting, despite how often those two are tied together. It doesn't mean that there's not consequences. Forgiveness is not excusing. It's, it's not as if to say it's not your fault because sometimes it is. When, when Eve, when we see this first kind of issue of sin and a need for forgiveness into the garden, she says, I took the fruit and the serpent made me do it. It's a sense of I'm the victim, but I'm also the perpetrator. So to have forgiveness just relieve, like it's not your fault, that's an issue. It's not accepting or allowing someone uh, to continue to do what they're doing. It's like if you're being abused, forgiveness doesn't mean you have to remain in that place. It's not... It's not fixing stuff. Forgiveness is not a tool to to just try and fix a relationship. It doesn't immediately build trust back. There are, again, consequences. And it doesn't reconcile. And I think this one's really important to me. It takes one person to forgive, and that's a gift. It takes two people to reconcile. So to keep those things in distinct places in your own heart as we move ahead is so helpful. And then finally, um, if this is going to be a topic today that you're like, that is stirring something in me. One of my favorite theologians is a guy named Miroslav Volf. 
And um, he is a Croatian, uh, grew up in kind of Serbia, Yugoslavia, and a lot of his work is based around this idea of what does forgiveness and reconciliation look like between people. And one of the things that he would say is to forgive somebody means that you have to accuse them. If, if there's a wrong that's been done, you have to call out the wrong first before you can move into forgiveness. And one of the things that he gets at is maybe too many of us are too nice to get to forgive people. Like we're too hesitant to really call out the wrong that's done in order to actually get all the way to forgiveness. I think it's some of that, the lullaby effect that we have of like things are wrong, I just gotta keep rolling, blah, blah, blah. We just, we don't point at it and call it out and say that's wrong. That step is crucial to move towards forgiveness. And even though it's a modality of grace, grace is how, like, it's, it's what happens in forgiveness. It doesn't stand in contrast to justice. To forgive someone is an act of justice. And it includes a dimension of grace that is extended towards the person who's done you wrong. Whew, okay. We ready? You want to hear some stories? Like, let's, let's paint in some color right now. Are you ready for this? Um, today, we are continuing in our series on the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 18, and we're, we're, there's two kind of back-to-back stories that happen right here. Um, I just want to say, too, this, this bothered me all week. When we start chapter 19 next week, the first thing that Jesus is going to be talking about is marriage. And I don't think whether, whether that was Jesus who did that and Matthew just captured it perfectly or if it's Matthew writing, I don't think it's an accident that he's going to say, I want to make sure we have a real healthy understanding of forgiveness. Now let's talk about marriage for a hot second. So as you experience things today, for those of us that are married, I would just invite you. Like, I think marriage is one of the greatest crucibles ever given the human soul. Marriage is not given to make you happy. It is given to make you holy. And I think the act of forgiveness that is required in a marriage can be so deeply informed by Jesus in these moments. Do with that what you will. All right, I'm picking fights. Here we go. All right, um, I want to start us out um, in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 21. And it's just a two-verse encounter that Jesus has with Peter. Sweet Peter, man. This guy continues to be awesome in the book of Matthew. Uh, So Matthew 18, 21 through 22, it goes like this. And Peter came and he said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, which just as a quick aside, another member of the church there literally means brother. If another brother (laughs) sins against me, but you have to remember who's in this posse with Jesus. It's like Peter and Andrew. Andrew's Peter's brother. So you kind of like, you do wonder a little bit, like, is there this like elbow jab of like, hey, if my brother sins against me, what am I supposed to do? And Andrew's right there like, what, dude? If, a, if another member of the church, if a brother sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. End of encounter. <laughs> You're like really weird. You two sentences. What is Jesus getting at here? And there's a couple of things I think that we can remember as we're diving in. What's just the on-the-surface interpretation that we have? Uh, we should forgive people a lot. Right? Like that's, that's pretty simple. It just comes right off the page. That's what he's getting at here. I think one other thing that I think should, should tinker with your mind a little bit in this is who's the agent in this story? Because, I, and this could just be me, I think in our modern context today, at least for mine, 
the question is not how many times should I ask for forgiveness, but how many times should I forgive them? It's not how many times when they ask me should then I forgive them. It's just how many times should I forgive? It does not require the other person in this situation. Peter is asking from a place of the heart. Just myself, when I'm gazing inward, when I'm experiencing rage or anger or grief, how many times, just me, how many times? He's not including the other person at all. Is forgiveness something that we hold the other person hostage to them admitting the wrong first? I think in this story, Jesus would say, I don't think that's where it begins. But it keeps going. Uh, <laughs> there's been a discussion going on in Jesus' day as we dig, dig a little bit deeper. If you were to read in the book of Amos, chapters one through like four, there's just this constant phrase that's going back. For, the, for three sins I will forgive, but for the fourth I'm done. And it's God talking to the nation of Israel. So for the rabbis of this day and age, if you were to ask any of them, like how many times should you forgive somebody, the industry standard was three times because that's how many God forgives. God forgives three times. Any more than that, clearly the other person just doesn't want it. Like they're, they're not willing to change. So we're gonna stop at three. So right away, I also want you to see, like Peter is brilliant. Like we give Peter such a hard time, but Peter's coming into Jesus going, Jesus, how many times? Seven like, he's an overachiever, man. A plus. You're like more than double what everybody else is talking about. And I think he's, like, he's got kind of a wry grin on his face. Like, right? Like, you see what I did there, Jesus? Like, I get it. <laughs> and Jesus leans back in. And he says, well, seven, Peter. That's, that's a good word. That's, that's the Jewish number that really resembles fullness, completeness, perfection, peace. You're saying to me, Peter, that you want to give somebody so completely that it's like peaceful again. That's good job, Peter. Actually, we're going to go with 77. <laughs> and, and I'm sure Peter's like, oh, okay. Um, and I, I think to dig even a layer deeper, again, this is a Jewish book written for a Jewish audience. The number 77 shows up only one other time in the Bible in this, even remotely, this kind of a context. And again, if you're Jewish, if you're a Jewish kid who's grown up memorizing the Old Testament, especially the first five books of the Bible, right away you're gonna go, I, I know what you're talking about. I know exactly the story that you're getting at. And something that, for me, like, I need a commentary to catch things like this. Um, and I'm delighted to get to catch things like this for us. Because the context of what's going on there is so important comes out of Genesis chapter 4. Now, see if you can catch what's going on, because we're actually going to read two stories, but we need the first to understand the second. Genesis 4, Cain has killed his brother. It's like crazy violent act that has now happened, and we're going to catch up to this conversation that he's having with God after that death. It says this in Genesis chapter 4 verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And anyone who meets me may kill me. 
which, just to pause for a second, I think is really funny, because so far, all we know is we got Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, and now he's worried that like other people are going to kill him. Like, either he's really worried about his parents, or maybe the literality of Genesis, the beginning of Genesis, maybe there's more going on here than a scientific, these are the technical only people on the planet, but I digress. We can talk about that later. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. That is his concern. People will take vengeance because they will hate that I'm the guy who killed his brother. People will seek me out as I'm wandering around without a home, without protection. Okay, keep all of this context in mind. This is where Jesus is going to say, you want to talk about forgiveness? We're going to stem from this story. He's worried that the wrongs that he's done in the world, everybody knows about, and they're going to come get him. Then the Lord said to him, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. I don't know what kind of mark this was. Clearly, it was like in a language that everybody understood, and clearly it communicated, if you kill me, God's going to take it out seven times on you. That's not good. That is not good at all. And apparently, this appeases the situation. This, this story kind of ends right here, and the Bible now continues on. We're going to get a genealogy of Cain, we're gonna go through six generations and then we're gonna meet a guy named Lamech, okay? And so now we're gonna get Lamech's story and now we're gonna catch where the 77 comes from. But don't forget, God said, if anybody comes after you, Cain, they're gonna get it seven times worse. And now we're gonna skip ahead just a few verses. We're gonna pick it up in Genesis chapter four, verse 23. Six generations after Cain, this is one of his great, great, great grandkids. It says this, Lamech, dude, this guy, this guy, he's such a, gosh, this guy. Lamech said to his wives, okay, just to pause there, Lamech's the first polygamous person we have in the Bible, which right away when you're reading this in context, the guys that come before him, the people that come after him, he's the only one that has two wives in this chunk. It's as if to say, like, this is already a guy who doesn't know when enough is enough. Like, this is not, this is, and, and A, he's, he's also asking for trouble, two wives, holy cow. But there's issues, like, this guy's got major issues, this is what he says. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Which, man, what a speech. I'm not, lis I'm not listening to you. <sighs> Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech 77-fold. Okay, I had to read this like no less than seven times just to understand what? Like, what is, what's he saying? Because it's so nonsensical. He's saying, look, God put this mark on Cain. Anybody who messes with Cain, they get it seven times worth. But I am Lamech. Wives, listen to me. Somebody who slapped me, I'm going to kill him. Somebody wounds me, they're gone. It's, it's this like outrageous revenge. I mean, it's, it's like nonsensical. How, how could somebody say that and choose to live that way? That's the level of like, oh my gosh, that you should see when you hear the name Lamech. And he's so clear, it's 77 fold. That's how bad it's gonna be. Like that's how awesome I am. That's how much destruction I bring in my wake. What? So now, back to Matthew. When we have all of this in tow, and then we read Peter saying, is it seven times double the industry standard? And Jesus says, no, it's 77 times. Jesus is not saying count all the way to 77. At 78, you can stop. It's a metaphor. Jesus is going, remember Lamech? 
Remember how outrageous, how absurd, absolutely absurd his revenge was. How many times are you supposed to forgive somebody? I'm reversing the trend. Your grace towards people should be absurd grace. Like it, it should like, like offend reason. Like it, when you hear stories like it, you should have to read it seven times over just to be like, what did they do? How, how does this work? It's, it's that absurd. Jesus is sending this whole story in a completely opposite direction. And I just, I love when we see Lamech, first guy to have two wives, first guy to say anything this awful that Jesus is going, you know what, if we want to talk about forgiveness, let me take it all the way back to one of like the worst villains ever. And we're going to rewrite a story for all humanity because you all have become just like him. And I want you to understand who you were always supposed to be. And the story continues. I, I think in this moment, as a, as a reader of Jesus in the book of Matthew, there's things that he said that like, you can roll with really easily. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's like hospitality, great. I love having people over. Peace, being a person of peace, yes, I hate war and I hate if I don't want that. Generosity, okay, giving away my stuff and giving away my time and my talent. Okay, cool, that's a good thing. Forgiveness? Now you're starting to hit pretty close to the heart. Like this, this whole topic today is, is hitting a whole other level. And now, I think looking at the, just seeing Peter's face, just this bewildered like, really thought I had that one nailed. <laughs> Jesus is going to go, you know what, let me tell you a story. And right out of this 77-fold, Jesus is going to tell this story. It's a parable. And it goes like this. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, and as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and a payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him, and he forgave his debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then this fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and he threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord what had taken place. The Lord summoned him and said, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he should pay the entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Dude. Okay, just to retract that story, we've got a guy, he owes, let's say, the government a lot of money. The government, the IRS calls, you gotta come in. He doesn't have it. He pleads, like the IRS says, we're taking your home, we're taking your family, like we're taking your entire life. And he just, he just pleads, he asks for forgiveness. And they say, okay, you know what, it's forgiven. Wild, right? That should not be happening. 
as he's walking out the door, going down the courthouse steps, he sees somebody else he lost some bets to, or that, that lost some bets to him, and they owe him a little bit of money. I don't know if you caught this. But we're going to get into this in a second. This dude owes him a little bit of money, and he grabs him by the throat, and he starts choking him, saying, give it to me right now. And the guy, like, he drops on his knees and said, no, like, give me some time. I'll, I'll get it back to you. He says, absolutely not. And he hauls him off to jail, and he throws this guy in jail. And then the IRS, the government, the king, this good king, hears about this story, and he brings him in, and he, throw, and he throws that guy in jail. That's, if you didn't catch it, that's the dynamic of the story going on here. Now, there's, there's a lot that's lost on us, too, just in the financial transactions that are happening here. And, and this, I hope, is just a mind-blowing, like, oh, the first time we read it, I didn't know that's what was going on. Here's the dollars as they're moving around. One denarius is equal to one day's wages, an entire day's worth of work. So a hundred denarii, which that's what the other guy owes him, is about three months of work. So that's a hefty amount. I mean, if you take your monthly paycheck, whatever your household income is, triple it. If you owed that to somebody, that's something, you know? And if somebody else owes that to you, you're toe-tapping waiting on that. Now, we, the first guy owes talents. And so to understand how much that is, one talent is equal to 6,000 denarius. So if you never spent a single one and you worked every single day to earn one talent would take you 16 years, five months, and five days. That's one talent. And in the story, do you remember when the first guy gets called in, do you remember how many talents he owes? He owes 10,000 talents. So right away, to the, to the audience that's hearing this and they know the money right offhand, they're going, oh my gosh, how did he even rack up that much debt? Like, clearly they did not check this guy's credit score. Like, that, that, that's wrong. Like, you, should, you shouldn't have given him that much to begin with. What happened? Y'all, that's 165,000 years of work. If you don't spend any and working every day, weekends, holidays, like, that... This is an insane amount of money. And I think, too, if you're in the original audience, you're going, okay, the average village that would have a, like kind of this Lord Surf system, I mean, tops out at about 200 people. So when you think how much cash on hand would just the average king have around, if there's 200 people, but it takes 165,000 years to rack up just this one guy's debt, this is enough to bankrupt the entire kingdom, I mean, to, to the people who are hearing this and they get the money, they're going, this, this is bad. This is bad for the king. This is bad for... How, what happened here? He starts... <laughs> he leaves from there and he starts choking the guy who owes him 100 denarii. So just the comparison alone. I owe 165,000 years. This guy owes me three months. Can you see the gravity of this story as Jesus is telling it? This is no small thing. If you were forgiven such a massive debt that you had racked up, what kind of a monster do you have to be to go out and start choking someone else like this? And I would posit to you as we go any further in today's story that Jesus is kindly saying, you do this every single day. And I think he's, he's gently looking back at Peter, going, this is the gravity of your situation every day. And he wants him to understand it. And I think there's one other thing that we have to pay attention to 
Because isn't it just, like there's a justice for the first guy to be able to come out and see the other guy and go, you do owe me that money. He's right to say that. But Jesus is wanting to get at something that underlies the justice. Something that, that's even deeper than that. He's saying, I want, I want to begin, if we're going to understand forgiveness, I want, I want you to begin with understanding the debt that you carry. I want you to understand your own need for forgiveness. It's, it's wild when you get into the Greek in the story. Anytime that Greek is like the exact same phrase, the author's doing that on purpose. When the first guy gets called into the king, the king uses this phrase, pay me back. And, and as soon as the slave and the second slave have this encounter, he, the first slave uses the same exact wording, pay me back. It's as if for Jesus as he's storytelling, he's going, it's a mirror. Like the first slave has this moment where he can see himself in the other guy because he, like the role reversal, the clarity of how, how tied these two stories are is so clear. He can see, I, this guy was in the same position I was just in. He can see it. He's using the exact same language. And he says it anyway. Forgiveness says, and this is Miroslav Volf, I know what you did, but I release you because God has released me, because humans need to be released, because humans are humans. You're messed up, and I'm messed up, and I got my debt paid. Therefore, I can forgive your debt. What a gorgeous story that Jesus is weaving here. And I think there's, there's one other thing that we, we've got to keep in mind when it comes to forgiveness. The debt always has to go somewhere. Like the king, and this, this I think is what I started with. I think for myself, this is where I get in trouble because I think, oh, it just kind of, it goes away, it just vanishes. The king, absor- like when the king forgives this debt, 165,000 years worth of money, who pays for that? Not the slave, the king. That falls on his QuickBooks at the end of the fiscal year. He's the one who's saying, I'll take the punishment for all the things you did that were messed up. That's remarkable. And in this moment where we have then these two slaves encountering each other, the one is saying, I'm not willing to do that for you. Uh, One author said, holding on to bitterness is like drinking a poison and waiting for the other person to die. It rattles around in your own heart, knocking around, doing damage, thinking that it's gonna do something to somebody else. I'm gonna bring out the band as we begin to wrap up our, our message for the day. But this only makes sense, not, not just this story, but like life only makes sense if there's a king in the story. I don't think the word forgiveness can exist if there is not a king figure somewhere. If there's not a king, we're just depressed and hurt and falling, fallen people just blooding each other on repeat. And that's it. That's all we have. And if you're somebody who's checking out the claims of Christ and you're trying to figure this out, I think one of the gifts that following Jesus can bring is now you have somewhere to put that. Now there's a king in the story. And if, if, there's, if there's a king, he's gotta be big. I mean, he's gotta have huge accounts. He's gotta have the ability to forgive significant credit debts. He's gotta be somebody who can absorb the cost, exorbitant costs. 
that's the only way that this story makes sense. I think one thing that makes life hard if you find yourself um, to be an atheist or agnostic is where does it go? For the wrong that's done in the world, where, how, how, what, what happens to that? Who pays for that? Is it just the victims they have to deal with it? What about the wrong done in us? Who pays for that? Are you just stuck with it? Are you stuck with the bitterness that you drink every day? And how is that person having to pay differently than you or I if we make them pay for it? How does it ask us to either condone or condemn or maybe choose this other way of getting at what's underneath the wrong? There has to be a moral law. There has to be something that we're held up to. And if that's true, then we're breaking it constantly. There must be some way to uphold it while also being able to have hope that the world isn't just an utterly wicked cesspool. There's a cognitive dissonance. There's too much beauty in the world for it to be all bad. There's too many good things that do exist here for it to be utterly wicked. So what gives it hope? It's a good king. He's willing to absorb the cost and to keep hope alive for us. You have been forgiven completely as a gift and as something you can receive. You can give away all that you've done and all that's been done to you. You can receive a clean start. You can receive rest from the torment that not forgiving and not releasing another or yourself can do. You can receive the king And while the cost of this is not a financial cost, it is a life cost. So as we sing today, I would love for you to consider the cost of life that your debt has created and the gorgeous, outrageous, absurd grace that the story of Jesus continues to speak over every single one of us. For those that are able, if you'd like to stand and sing, you're welcome.